Thanks, Carlin. I think um, the intents of the notes for the youth, and, and if you're, you know, if any of you kids, I don't know if there's anyone here that uh, wants to take them, even if they're younger than like kind of grade seven and up, um, you can. They're mainly just to help our youth uh, kind of follow along with the message and, and to help guide them uh, as I preach. So, um, Samuel, why don't you go get one? You can go, there's one for you. And uh, basically, anyone grade seven and up, I would encourage you guys, we want, part of this is we want to be helping form the word in you uh, so that you're following along with where we're going with our messages. And you guys, I know that all of you in grade seven and up are more than intelligent enough to follow along with this stuff. So, um, yeah. So how, how are we, this is one of the questions I was thinking this week, how, how are we feeling in these days amidst all the ongoing pressure and sort of the loads of change, you know, stuff that's almost difficult to articulate and difficult to quantify, how, how are we feeling with that? Not getting a lot of response, <laughs> sorry. People are the problem. Maybe that question catches you off guard. But like the world, the world constantly is changing right now, right? Like it's just everything is just seems to be changing rapidly around us. And and, and one of the things, the reason why I asked that is as I, one of the questions that I want to put before you today, several times throughout the message is, um, what is that doing to us? Do you ever stop to think about everything that's going on around you? What is it doing to me? Or another way of asking that is, what am I becoming? With everything that's going on, everything that's hitting me, how I'm responding, how I'm interacting, how I'm engaging, what am I becoming? Now, that's a big kind of picture question that I think is, is very, very important for us as followers of Jesus to constantly be thinking about and putting before ourselves and asking and doing that, that work of self-examination. And so uh, it very much ties into the series that we're, where we're going to be going. And, and so we're kicking off this new series, as Carlin mentioned. It's going to take us through the Beatitudes over the next number of weeks. Uh, today is, is more of sort of an intro message to kind of set the stage, if you will, for all this. And so uh, we've titled this series, The Kingdom Manifesto. Now, you maybe can't read the words there at the bottom, but it's Jesus' way to subvert the world's way. And I'll explain that a little bit, but that's, that's kind of the subtitle of this series. And, it, and it's really important to give the introduction because I think that you might be surprised and shocked by how sometimes we come to the Beatitudes and how I think Jesus means us to understand the Beatitudes. And I think that it is life-changing when we uh, grasp what he's doing uh, in, that, in the Beatitudes as part of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to Matthew 4. Uh, we're going to read parts of Matthew 4 that's going to kind of... Matthew 4 sets the stage for the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So Matthew 4, verses 12 uh, on. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. So, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Just pause. Whoa. Whoa. That should be like a whoa moment of Jesus is fulfilling what Isaiah spoke of. And this is what it says in Isaiah. Matthew quotes it. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the, to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Woe. This is a woe moment. Then verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus, we receive these words this morning as the very words of life. We don't receive them just as history. We receive them as the living word for us this morning as your followers. And we want to ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open us up to see all that you have purposed for us this morning. That our hearts would be wide open to receive what you have for us. And Jesus, that you would meet us in profound, profound ways right here and right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Verse 17 there of Matthew, theologians widely agree that that verse where Jesus comes and and he's preaching the gospel, that that represents a major shift in the narrative of Matthew. That that from this time on, right until actually Matthew 16, that there's this shift where Jesus is now publicly preaching the gospel. He's, He's entering into a very visible role. He's announcing his mission and his purpose in the public realm, and he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven has come. Do you ever think about that? Like, he's preaching the kingdom of heaven is now here. It's near. It's coming. It's, I'm, I'm bringing this kingdom. And so this proclamation of the kingdom, that word preached there in verse 17, the Greek word that's used there is, was used for a herald that was making this bold announcement direct from the king. So it's a very, very heavy word with lots of meaning. And so that's where we get this word, the kingdom manifesto, because manifesto means announcement, proclamation, a public notice. Jesus is making a clear and bold announcement of his kingdom. And, and there's something profoundly simple and powerful in this proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into this earth, and it's all because of Jesus. 
Jesus is the sole reason that the kingdom of God was coming. And what Jesus is saying here and goes on to really say again and again and again is, he is the way. I am the way. There is no other way. In him is how all the plans and purposes of God breaking into this earth. And what it's also telling us is what we need in our lives more than anything is Jesus. And so that's where the subtitle to this series, Jesus' Way, to subvert the world's way. I don't, I don't know if any of you off the top would know what the definition sort of of subvert is. I, I love the word because it means to overturn or to overthrow. And, and what it's getting at is Jesus' way is not the world's way. Jesus offers a profoundly different way. So a number of years ago, we were traveling to Oliver, B.C., and at the time, we didn't have smartphones, I don't even think. We didn't have uh, Google Maps. We had one of those Garmin GPSs in our vehicle. And we were following it. And we, and we were coming back from Vancouver uh, into the Okanagan to visit Jess's uh, uncle and aunt. And we hadn't gone that way from Vancouver. And so we were following the Garmin map. And it was telling us that there, as we got closer, there was this shorter way that we could kind of take. And if you know the Garmin um, sort of those Garmin things you have on your car. They don't really show you the terrain at all or anything. It just shows you a different way. And so we thought, and we, and we renewed this. We're like, oh, well, this is like going to cut like 100 kilometers off of our trip. Like, you know, and, and we're like, no, we should take this way. And so we, we take, we start on this way and we're going through vineyards and orchards and it's, it's pretty nice. And, and, but it's a little bit back roads. And I'm like, but you know, it's, it's the Okanagan. And so, but then we, we pass over a couple cattle grates and I'm like, okay, I don't know about this road. And then the road starts to really turn a little bit dodgy. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> Jess is remembering this. Like, I don't think this is the way. I'm like, I, you know, I know this is shorter, but like, I'm like, I just don't feel comfortable. So we were like, yeah, we should just turn around. We went the other way, the normal way that we knew, which takes you uh, down around to Suyos and up to Oliver. And so we got to her uncle and aunts and we were telling them about this. And, and uh, her uncle's like, Oh yeah, you, you could have taken that way. He's like, that's like up and over the mountain. He's like, it would get you here. He's like, the mountain right behind our house here. Like, you know, if I could show you a picture. Like, I, I've seen that mountain. He's like, yeah, right up over there. He's like, probably not advisable in a van. If you had a full 4x4, four four, maybe. He's like, we've done it in a 4x4, four four, but not, not in your van. So, in this illustration... The mountain way is the world's way. It, it looks inviting at first. It looks easier. It's going to save you time. Jesus' way is, in this illustration, the longer way. It'll cost you more. But it's the right way. It's the proper way. It's the way you should go. And, and the way that you'll want to take in the end. And along the way, this is the thing. Yeah, it's going to be longer and whatever. It doesn't, this illustration doesn't fully work, but in, you know, along the way, you'll go through beautiful places like Asuyos, along the journey, and you're like, this is awesome, as you walk with Jesus. All that to say, the world has a way. Jesus has a way. And they are not even close to being similar. The world's way, you're like, what, what is the world's way? Well, Ephesians 2 
gives us a glimpse of what the world's way is, talks there about following ways that are influenced and infused by forces of darkness, where we're inclined to pursue whatever makes us feel good, lives directed by these thoughts and desires, the preservation and the exaltation of self, and the pursuit of whatever we believe will bring us satisfaction. That's the world's way. As we dig into the Beatitudes, we're going to consider the way that the world offers, the way that the world says, this is the way you should go. This is the way that you should take. And the way that Jesus puts forth and how easily distinguishable they are from each other. I think they are profoundly distinguishable as we get into it. And when we consider the way of Jesus, there is the simplicity of Jesus' call for us preaching the good news where he came upon the scene and he proclaimed the breaking in of his kingdom into this world. It is the best news. It cannot be overstated. It is the best news. It is also the costliest news for you. The gospel is the best news. It's really clear, yes, but it's really costly. The invitation is to follow Jesus' way, to admit our lostness and brokenness and our need for salvation and our need for healing. To admit that we cannot find this within ourselves, but we need to lay down our lives. We need to surrender our lives to Jesus and follow his way. This this is Jesus' commission, right? At the end where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So as as an aside, when, when we surrender our lives to Jesus to follow his way, baptism is the way that we identify with him. The, the act of baptism, our willing confession of faith, where it's upon confession of our faith, I am following the way of Jesus, is, is the way that we're united with him in his death and resurrected to new life in him. Yes, it is an act, but it is an act where we kind of put our stake in the ground. That's what baptism is wearing. We are following this way. But this... And, and I'll, I'll just say, too, to that. So, so if you haven't been baptized, or you're saying, I actually feel like maybe I need to be re-baptized for some reason, come and, come and talk to me. We, we want to invite and we want to encourage that as we follow Jesus, that baptism is the way that we make that claim. But this, this, this way of Jesus, in that, in that you know, uh, deciding, choosing, responding to God's call, being baptized. It's not a one-time decision that then guarantees your spot in heaven while we go on living for our own passions and desires as we see fit. It's not that. The Christian life is a life of constant and daily surrender to Jesus and his way. It's not complicated, but it is costly. And Jesus' call is simplistic in that it reveals there is only one way to lasting peace, joy, life, and joy. There, there are not, and, and this is what the world would tell you, that there are almost seemingly endless ways that you can achieve 
peace and joy in this life, that you can have fulfillment by just any number of ways. And what Jesus says is, no, ultimately this is found in me and in following my way. And the striking question that the Beatitudes present to us then is, what are we becoming? These verses that we read, that we read this morning, they, they really actually provide important context for what's to come in the Beatitudes. E. Stanley Jones, he was a Methodist missionary in India, said, if we separate Jesus' Beatitudes from the context in which he first spoke them, his words, meant to give life, become either frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. So what, what, what he means by that is either on one side, they become like just these ideas where you're going, like seriously, like blessed are the merciful, like blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All these, all the beatitudes, like you go, that's, that, that seems, seems like this ideal that we're never hit. Or it becomes frustrating legalism where we, we are bound up to this in a way that isn't healthy. We need to hear and process the Beatitudes in light of Jesus' kingdom manifesto. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And the reason that Matthew uses that wording there is because Jewish audiences, they didn't even like to use the name of God. It was so holy. So they, they, when they talked about the kingdom of heaven, they're talking about the kingdom of God. It's breaking into our brokenness and offering us life in and through Jesus. That's how we're meant to hear this. This, this is extremely good news. And, and even that, like that feels like an understatement. It's God breaking into our world. And I, I, there's a graphic here I have. Uh, it won't be online, but this graphic, if you can see it, I would embrace Daryl Johnson's explanation of how we understand God's intervention into our world. Where the Old Testament prophets spoke often of the day of the Lord, where God will radically intervene in history and bring his plan to fulfillment. And on that day, sin is going to be removed. Evil is going to be overcome. And death will be no more. The kingdom of God will fully come into this world. The age to come, if you will. But this is what Jesus reveals in his kingdom manifesto. Ahead of this day, he's revealing, I've come into the world. God has come in, has broken in as the person of Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And ahead of that great day that is to come, the Lord himself comes into our world and brings with him his kingdom now. And so when Jesus is coming, we experience the presence of God intervening in the presence, the future, if you will, spilling over into the present and heaven invading earth. So yes, we still live in the present. We live in the now, but not yet. Experiencing tastes of heaven at times, but not its fulfillment. We, we experience the ache. We sang about it this morning, and is he worthy? We experience that ache Almost that lament of like, is there someone that can bring an end to this? Is there someone who can open the scroll spoken of in Revelation? Is there someone that can bring in the kingdom of heaven and the fulfillment into this earth? And of course, the Bible tells us, yes, this is Jesus. And so we experience the presence of God now in bits and spurts. 
but the full reality is yet to come. But the coming of Jesus has radically transformed the world. 2,000 years on, and the kingdom of heaven coming into this world, Jesus coming into this world, has turned this world upside down. The world has not been the same since. And so, what, it, what is the good news for our lives? That's, that's really the question this morning. There's three things I want to draw out from here, what we read. The first is the call to repent. Verse 17, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near. And he says, repent. He follows what John the Baptist had been saying, repent. It, repent simply means to think again or think anew. It means simply to turn around. So if you, I'm going in this direction, I turn and I go this direction. That's what it means to repent. The realization that we've been heading in the wrong direction, the realization that we need to turn, the realization that there's something amiss or wrong. We're making the wrong choice. We're heading the wrong way. And, and Jesus is saying, turn around and believe the good news that I have. And this is where repentance plays such a critical role in the life of a follower of Jesus as a consistent practice. As Carlin showed this morning on that little, the little toy there where, you know, that's, that's what repentance and confession is, the wiping away. It's a consistent practice. It's asking ourselves constantly, am I following Jesus' way? Did my action in this or that scenario speak of Jesus' way? No? Okay, I need to turn around. Did the patterns or choices or the behaviors that I exhibited in this scenario or in this situation, did they exhibit the way of Jesus? No. Okay, well then I need to turn around. I need to repent. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses onto the Wittenberg Cathedral door and began the Protestant uh, movement, it said the first thesis that he had there of his 95 was, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What Luther was getting at is that this progress in the life of a follower of Jesus is marked by repentance. Assessing our lives in the light of the gospel of Jesus and his scripture and how we're living. What are we living for? Does it align with the kingdom of God? And, and, and it's really, it's unfortunate because in Protestant evangelical tradition, we have so regrettably, we've, we've rejected um, and, the, and cultivated a very dangerous belief system where when it comes to confession and repentance, sort of as a reaction to the abuse of it in the Catholic Church and confessionals and indulgences and paying basically money to the church to have your sins wiped away. And, and the Protestant Reformation was like, no, 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 that, that, that is so bad what they were doing, and, and we, we actually turned, and we, we went, the pendulum swung the other way, and so now where confession, repentance in Protestant traditions is basically a singular, individual thing. We might do it on our own, and a lot of times we do it just before we take communion, right? We assess ourselves before God, and we're like, well, before I take this cup, i got to see, is there anything in me that I need to repent for? And so we, we've largely ignored the practice of confession in the church, in the Protestant church, almost entirely. And it largely remains that way to this day. Confession of sin as evangelicals largely 
is just a private exercise. But the reason that John the Baptist and Jesus both spoke of the need of repentance and why the New Testament all throughout uh, the letter speaks of its need to be ongoing in our lives is because it is about freedom. And for confession to yield not just forgiveness, but freedom in our lives, we have to bring our sins into the light. 1 John 1, Ephesians 5, there's a number of things we could cite, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together, again, one of probably the, the best works ever written, acknowledged on community. He said, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. Bonhoeffer wrote that in the midst of the Third Reich coming in and basically taking over the church in Germany. He saw what was happening to the church. They, they started this group that was kind of in the woods, this community together, and he saw the need for confession in community. And it, and it really poses an unavoidable question to us if we want healthy relationships in this way, and that is, do you have someone in your life that you walk in confession with on a consistent basis? Is, the, is there a spiritually mature person that you intentionally share with and open up to as a means of practicing confession in your life? Someone who will lovingly and graciously be honest with you. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's talking there about having a place of loving community where you can openly talk about stuff in your life, be vulnerable about stuff that you're walking through in your life, things you're struggling with, sin in your life. It's a gift that brings freedom. Sin, the thing about sin is it wields power over our lives. And the way that sin mainly wields power in our lives is when it's kept in the dark because then it keeps manifesting in shame and guilt and addiction. And it loves to remain in the darkness. Having a spiritual practice of confession in our lives is a powerful, powerful tool to help us rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us following the way of Jesus. And it serves to get issues into the light in our lives before they become painful issues and they cause pain in us. And so this brings us back to the question again. What am I becoming? Are we, am I growing in the likeness of Jesus? Have I grasped and embraced his kingdom for my life? Who am I becoming? So the good news calls us to repent. It also is, the good news is the invitation to follow. I, I don't know if you notice, if you realize, right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you, if, you, if you're reading it, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't preached to crowds. It wasn't, Jesus was not preaching the Sermon on the Mount to all of the people that were there. It says he withdrew, he went up on the mountainside with his disciples, and he began to teach. This was about him and his disciples, those who were following his way, and he was teaching them. 
The Beatitudes are specifically being spoken to those who've chosen to follow his way, who've made the decision to turn and follow him. And this is why the call to James, John, Peter, and Andrew is placed where it is in Matthew's account. It's not just meant to be read as an historical event, like, oh, he called these fishermen, oh, he called these fishermen, oh, and they followed him at once. No, no, it's not that. It's Matthew's putting it in there specifically to draw out of us going, what about you? Will you follow Jesus? When he calls, are you following him? And in light of this culture, we have to consider the question. It's, it's an important question. What Jesus are we following? Because there's versions of Jesus that have been created and are being created in our culture that we are invited to follow. Mixing Jesus with Western cultural norms to make him more appealing, more able to fit into our societal ambitions or norms or our particular theology. When we talk about the invitation to follow Jesus, it's, it's really imperative that we clearly define what are we being called to follow. It's, it's incredibly damaging and detrimental to our spiritual health if we create a definition of following Jesus that is not aligned with the way that he's given us. If we try to create something different. And this danger is prevalent in our culture and is only growing. So think about what, what does the world's discipleship preach to us constantly? Very simple. Be popular. Be great. Be successful. Avoid suffering and failure. What does Jesus present as discipleship? Reject popularity. Reject being great. Reject success. Embrace suffering and failure. So you go, well, well, is it possible then to follow the way of Jesus and experience popularity, success, and achievement? Yes, it is. But if the goal of your life and the aim of your life are those things rather than becoming more like Jesus and being made into his image first and foremost, then what you're going to find, very easy, is you're going to find yourself embracing a vision for your life that leads you away from Jesus, while quite possibly claiming to follow a version of Jesus that suits your life. Is that you tracking there? Jesus says, do not define your life by the things of this earth and what it values. He says, but seek first my kingdom. First, above all, he says, guys, follow me. Embrace what I, pro what I promise because it leads to life. So I was, I was able to participate in a Zoom call this week uh, with John Mark Comer for the release of his new book. And it was really neat. And, and he was just speaking to those of us who are on this launch team about where, um, kind of where the book came from and where he feels the church is at in culture. And he said something that really gripped me. And what was awesome is as he, he's talking fast, they had auto captions on the Zoom call. So I was actually able to screenshot it. Wow, I love technology sometimes. I was able to screenshot it and get exactly what he said. This is so, if you're like, well, how do you know? This is what he said. So many of us are living with thoroughly secular assumptions in our mind, in our mind and in our heart 
even in our body, about what the good life is, what is good and true and beautiful to such a degree that the good news of Jesus actually sounds like bad news, whether that's around money, sexuality, gender, or community versus individualism. I, I, was, I was gripped by, by just processing that thought. What is shaping my assumptions and views about life? How much time do I spend scrolling social media, streaming shows, browsing Amazon, consuming reels? No, I don't, I don't do all that stuff, but I'm, right, just, like, how much time do I just spend just scrolling stuff? How much time do we spend in that versus scripture? Sitting in silence and solitude, allowing yourself to feel your emotions, inviting Jesus to minister to you, meditating on the Psalms or other parts of Scripture, reading books that speak truth to your mind and engage your heart with the things of Jesus. I'm asking that because the question is so paramount for us. What is informing you about what the good life is? And hopefully it's not shaped by your curated Instagram feeds where everyone just tries to present the best life that just isn't even close to actual reality. What shapes your opinions about sexuality and gender? What's shaping your response amidst COVID? Is it the good news of Jesus? Or is it other things? The call to follow Jesus for Peter, Andrew, James, and John, it had a significant uh, impact on their life. They left their nets and followed him. They left what they were called to. They, They first and foremost followed Jesus. There was loss associated with the call. There was sacrifice. There was surrender. So the question is, is, what does the call of Jesus look like for your life? You're like, what what does the call of Jesus look like for my life? I I can't definitively tell you. We all have to seek the Lord. But I can tell you, it will involve loss, it will involve sacrifice, and it will involve surrender. In the eyes of culture. Right? People are going to look and go, "That, that, that, I don't understand that. But this is the promise that Jesus says for his kingdom. He says, he goes on, he says there, you will attain the greatest treasure. You will have the pearl of great price. You will get all of me, all of my kingdom in the end. You will receive life that only comes through me. And really, how could it come through anyone else? Because did anyone else bring the kingdom of God into this world? No. No one else has broken into this world with the kingdom of God. And so that brings us again back to the question, what am I becoming? What am I following? What am I being led to believe is the good life? Lastly, the good news for our lives, it's an invitation to repent, it's an invitation to follow, and it's also, it reveals our need to receive healing. Physical emotional, spiritual healing, Jesus' desire to heal every part of us. The ministry and the presence of Jesus in our lives is about healing. 
When we invite Jesus to minister to us, when you invite Jesus to minister to you in your life, it is first and foremost a ministry of healing. One thing that's pretty obvious, and we're, well, you'll see it as we go through the Beatitudes, and if you've read them, is that the Beatitudes reveal a substantial amount of brokenness in the ones called blessed. Like, like it's shocking, actually, when you go through the Beatitudes, what Jesus calls blessed. It's, it's utterly shocking. You go, that, that doesn't make sense with what the world says is blessed. And if this is Jesus' manifesto for his followers, it does not align with the world that we live in, and it doesn't even align with a host of what other Christians might claim, which brings up a lot of problems sometimes. Like when you're trying to parent, and you're like, well, the kids, your kid's like, well, well they, they're, they're, they're Christians, and you're like, okay, how am I going to explain this now? It is easier than ever to numb, dull, ignore, or even mask difficult emotions and painful experiences in our lives. Just click open my phone, ignore it, go to some app. Just, you know, like, it, the, the prevalence of that in our culture is just so radical right now. And so it's, it's like that to the extent that without intentional, conscious attention, many of us may be unaware of what is subconsciously directing our thought life and behavior. Like we're acting in certain ways, we're responding in certain ways, and we're like, we may not even be aware of, why am I reacting like that? We simply distract ourselves to death, sometimes even to the point of physical death, but certainly spiritual death. Because here's the thing, folks. We all experience pain and hurt in our lives. No one is going to get away with not feeling that. What we do with it is what sets the trajectory of your life. So part of our heart for LCF as a leadership is that, that we would be constantly growing in the area of emotional health and maturity as it relates to our walk with Jesus, emotionally healthy spirituality, this idea that I cannot be emotionally immature and claim spiritual maturity, that, that, that doesn't compute. So that we're, we're constantly growing this, we're embracing grief and loss, which is again, one of the reasons, why do, why do we run Grief Share? Because it's a way actually that we embrace grief and loss and we walk through it, not try to avoid it. We create room for healing in our lives. We want to create that room, which is an ongoing process. So Pete Scazzaro, who you heard before on that um, advertising, this is what he says. He says, what we fail to realize is that a refusal to embrace our sorrows and to grieve them fully condemns us and our churches to a shallow spirituality that blocks the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It contributes to the overall sense of superficiality in our churches and a lack of profound compassion. There's a lot there to contemplate. So, as an aside, and I, and I, I kind of actually meant to say this before, but, you know, in offering emotionally healthy spirituality, 
Um, we're, this is not simply to offer another course. Like, okay, let's, let's offer something in the fall. It's fall time. We want to give something and, and give that to the church. It's not, it's really not that. It is that. It is a course, but it is a process. It's inviting you into a process that doesn't happen overnight. You know, there, there is no magic bullet. It's like, take this course. Eight weeks later, I'm going to come out, and I'm going to be like a completely transformed, radically new individual. No, no. It's a process that takes you on of alerting things to you. How do I love God more? How do I receive the love of God more? But it absolutely has the potential to produce tremendous fruit in our lives and help us in the way of Jesus. So I want to I leave us this morning as, we, as I end. I want to um, leave us with this as we're invited to receive the good news of Jesus and as we enter in, we're going to enter into the Beatitudes. And it, and it corresponds to receiving healing from Jesus. And that is, what, what does it mean to be blessed are people? When Jesus says blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, what, what does it mean to be those people? And I'm going I'm to unpack this more yet, but I want to, I kind of want to leave this with you to ponder. The word translated blessed there is the Greek word makarios. It's a word that's just packed full of meaning. And it can be translated happy. You might have heard that with the Beatitudes. Happy are, happy are the people. But, but that's, that's just way too simplistic when we talk about that word. It's, it's, and it's not about a subjective feeling, like how am I feeling? It's actually, the word is about an objective state, meaning how does God see me? Not how I'm feeling, but how does God see me? How does God see us? And so we're actually getting closer to the meaning of the word when we think about uh, it in the word, in the uh, thinking like right on. Like right on are the people, or uh, in alignment are the people, or in sync are the people. You're, you're synchronized when that's, that's sort of, um, that, that's the way we can better understand the word. It's not that we're called blessed because we have these qualities. I want to I just, like, as we come into the Beatitudes, it's not because I have this list of eight qualities that Jesus lists, and because of that, if I've got these qualities in my life, then I'm the blessed people. No, 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 no. It's not that. It's not if you have those and then you're found worthy. Rather, it's the good news of the gospel taking hold in your life and in our lives. And because of that, because the gospel is taking hold in my life, I'm seeing who Jesus is. I'm seeing how incredibly, utterly, utterly amazing his good news is. And I'm becoming, I'm coming into his kingdom that I am becoming the blessed are people. Does, does that, I want to just really, really drill that down for you guys. It is not, do I have these qualities? Because we're going to go through these qualities and you're going to be like, I don't feel like I have that. I feel like I'm a long way from that. I don't know if I measure up. You know what, what Paul's saying? I, I can't do that. What Jesus is offering, I, I can't. No, 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 no. Not that. It is I have come to see that Jesus is the way and I'm embracing his kingdom and this is who I am becoming. So again, it's back to what am I becoming? So 
so important of a question that we put in our lives before ourselves. What am I becoming? How is the gospel taking root in my life and changing me to become a kingdomized follower of Jesus? That's good news. That's exceedingly good news. All right. Uh, you know, I'm going I'm to give you some application questions here that I want to I leave us to go away with. And you, you're actually going to have two weeks. Because uh, next week, uh, and, I, and I'm going to trust the Lord is somehow operating in all of this. Uh, I'm, I'm going this week to Alberta for a few days for a board meeting retreat with Clearwater College uh, that I need to be at. And uh, so while I'm there, I'm going to be taping Gene. Gene Enns is going to be bringing us a message I'm going to bring back with me that... Um, he was sharing with our board about, and I, I, I actually really felt the leading of the Spirit going, this, we need this message. I actually don't know how it's going to align with all this, but I, I trust, you know, the Lord is always synchronizing things for us. So uh, that's going to be next week. I, I would welcome while I'm gone and for our family. Uh, pray for Jess and the kids. Pray for me as I'm away. Uh, and I will be back, Lord willing, my flight will be on time, and I'll be back midnight Saturday night, and I'll be here Sunday morning with everyone. So actually pray for that, because that, that's, I'm, I can't handle a delay in a flight or a, something like that. Okay, here's the application that I want to leave you with. Five questions that I would just, I would just, in this, who are we becoming? Put these before the Lord. Number one, where do I feel the influence and pull of the world's way in my life? Second, how do I feel about the statement the Christian life is a life of constant and daily surrender to Jesus? Like how, do, how do I feel about that? Three, how do I view and walk out confession in my life? Who might be someone I can ask to walk with me in this? Four, what is my view of the good life? How does it impact me following Jesus? And five, where am I in need of Jesus' healing in my life? Because we are all in need of Jesus' healing in our lives. Let's, uh, let's pray. Jen, you can just, uh, we'll, we'll end with a short, if we can, can we keep it short? I think it'd be good if we did something, but let's, um, yeah, I know we're technically over time per se, but. Father, I, I want to I ask that you would really impress upon us in these days that you are inviting us to receive and internalize the good news of Jesus into our lives, to come to follow Jesus more and more and more. And Lord, I want to pray that as we as we sink our teeth, so to speak, into the Beatitudes, Lord, and as we get into it, Lord, I want to pray that they would not be um, looked at I I idealism or oppressive legalism. Lord, I pray that you would save us from any of that thinking where we just look at it as, as um, idealism that we can never achieve or legalism that, that weighs down on us. Lord, it's not that. It's an invitation for us to be receiving your good news and for it to be bearing fruit in our lives. And so, Lord, I, I, 
I pray that you would be ministering to us in that. And Jesus, minister to us as your church. Would you grow us in these days into more and more and more into the image of Jesus. And I want to pray, Lord, for all of us here that this week and weeks to come that we would encounter you in your word, that we would encounter you, that we would experience you, that we would have sweet fellowship with you in these days, Lord. We thank you for that. Jesus, we thank you that you're so good to us. And we thank you that your kingdom is here and it's breaking into the present. And pray this in your name. Amen.